Before we get into this podcast, I want to send a special shout out to Hadassah Batshoshana because this is her Torah portion and it's actually a double Torah portion of Mato Mase. So to my Achoti, I just want to say Mazal Tov. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotah B'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Veha Arevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torateka befinu ufiam ka bet Israel, venia naknu veze etzeinu veze etzeiam ka bet Israel, kulanu yodea shemeka velom de Torateka lishma. Baruch atah Adonai, hamlame Torah leamo Israel. Baruch haba beshem Adonai, hakadosh baruku, please send Mashiach now. I'd like to welcome you to the Parasha Matot PSI, the Please Source It series. So we're in the next to last Parasha of Sefer Bamidbar. It has been an exciting journey, pun intended, because Bamidbar is all about the journeys. And the Parasha Masay is the Parasha that's about the journeys. So really quickly just to kind of line this up so matot is in Bereshit 30 and it goes to chapter 32 verse 42 parsha mase starts in 33 verse 1 and goes to the end of bami bar which is chapter 36 and verse 13. so as we're looking at matot and mase and years some years they are read separately and some years they are read together this year they're actually read together but i'm doing the psi separately for bezrat Hashem future reference that uh, this will be available as a single parsha uh, insight as opposed to both of them together so continuing on i want to actually start out with the assemble the avengers part of our parsha, which actually comes from our first aliyah of the parsha, because in parsha Oslika, I am in uh, parsha Behaloteka right now, but in uh, parsha Matot, we have the go to war with the Midianites passage. So Hashem says to take take revenge, you know, and uh, the Avengers is really interesting because it's about really uh, going against the forces of darkness and enemies that are uh, a threat to humanity, all mankind, not only on Earth, but also in the cosmic galaxies as well to all those who are uh, in need of defense. So we have some of our galactic heroes like Captain Marvels and Nova's. Shouts out to Nova, by the way. He just now uh, got on Anchor not too long ago, and he has a first episode of his podcast. And Bezrat Tashem, he will be off to the races uh, to bring some insights down. And I encourage you to check that out when uh, the next episode is available. So his Avenger is Nova. And uh, I call him Mr. Helmet of Salvation. Where you head at, man? <laughs> but, uh, you know, because Nova, his power comes from his helmet. And in Ivrit, 
the head covering by the Kohen Gadol is called the Mitznefet from the word Zanif, which is the word for head covering. So there's a whole lot to go with that because we're to have the armor of God upon us, which is actually patterned after the Kohen Hagadol. And the Kohen Hagadol is the one who wars for us. He leads us in the prayers and, and connecting us with Hashem, bringing down the Shekinah to the earth and so on and so forth. So to have the idea of the helmet of salvation as a part of what is on the head of the one who leads us in war, which by the way, war is prayer. So when we are praying, why do you think you have thoughts and your mind wants to wander and it's hard to focus and concentrate? It's because you are at war. Specifically, when we uh, pray in the morning, we wear uh, tallit and we wear tefillin for men. And so um, there's this idea of putting on your battle array uh, when you're davening before Hashem. So prayer is a time of war. Uh, Parsha Kitavo brings down some more of that. So uh, when we go out to war over our enemies, uh, i.e. when we go to war, trusting in Hashem, full of humility, full of teshuva, we are actually guaranteed to be victorious, which is why when you look at this war that we're going out to here as we're taking revenge, so to speak, on the Midianites, that uh, there's a whole lot there, but there were no casualties in that war. So say la to that, because how many times do we think in our human mind that uh, when we go out to war, there's a chance that we could die? And the thing is, is that's true when we go out to war with Hashem. However, Hashem guarantees us victory should we be people who are filled with His Spirit, who run away from sin, who have disassociated themselves from sin, and who have associated themselves with the Shekinah of God, which walks around our camp, by the way. So this is why it's important to understand living a life of Torah and being filled with brachot on a constant basis to pray without ceasing, to always look for mitzvahs, to always be bound up in mitzvot. Because why? We're constantly at war in this world. And if we ever think for a moment that we can let our guard down, that we can be like, oh, I just want a little tranquility. Well, the person who asked for tranquility in this world, guess what? His daughter got raped. And guess what? His son got sold to slavery. And yes, I'm talking about Yaakov. So if you want tranquility in this world, uh, might want to rethink that. But all that to say, we are at war when we're davening. And we have to understand if we are not filled with teshuva, if we're not walking in righteousness, we need to uh, make those adjustments. So part of that is thinking about the Kohen Haggadol, which, by the way, the Kohen anointed for war which is the, the backup Cohen, by the way, because that's what Pincus was. Pincus, not only was he granted uh, the anointing to be a part of the Kahuna, the, the Cohen Haggadol, like Aharon and his sons, and oh yeah, Pincus and his offspring, because <laughs> uh, we learned that last week's Torah portion, but he actually leads us out into war in this fight. Which is interesting when you think about the fact that Yehoshua is the, supposed to be the one who leads us out in this fight. Because we learned in Parsha Pincus that Moshe commanded Hashem appoint a leader for the people upon his demise. 
And Hashem was like, yeah, all right, choose Yehoshua. When Moshe dies, it is the rise of Yehoshua, which, by the way, is Yeshua. And the Keher Tumash brings down in Parsha, I can't remember off the top of my head, I believe it is um, Vayelik. If it's not, it's uh, Hazinu, and it brings down in the insights on that Torah portion that actually it could be Vizel Habaraka. I'll source that out in just a moment. Uh, well, you know what? I'm going to source it out now. Can't be in the Please Source It series and not sourcing stuff out. It's enough of that. At least end on a good note, right? Okay, so we're going to go to... Uh, I'm going to start in Vizel Habaraka because it basically talks about the people will rebel after Moshe's demise, but it actually did not occur until Yehoshua died. And at the end of Yehoshua, you know, the, as for me and my house, we will serve Hashem, you know, that kind of uh, passage that was brought down. But anyway, the reason why is because Yehoshua's life is considered to be an extension of Moshe's life. So we're going to source this out real quick. Um, see here. Okay, so I know it's from the Keho Tumash, so I'm going to. It's not in the Hasidic Insights. Uh, let's see here. Oh, here we go. By the way, uh, just so we know, Vezot HaBaraka says that God dictated the final eight verses of the Torah to Yehoshua, who finished writing the 13 scrolls after Moshe's death. Uh, the source of that is going to be, if I can get this to cooperate with me, uh, da, 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 da. Rashi uh, brings this down, and it is on verse 5 uh, of Devarim chapter 34. So, Devarim chapter 34, verse 5 says Moshe the servant of God then died there in Moab figuratively by the mouth of God i.e. in the same serene manner in which both Aharon and Miriam died known as God's kiss so after Moshe's death there were 13 scrolls that Moshe began writing and the final eight verses is what Yehoshua finished and this is the really cool thing about the comment that says when the Mashiach shows up that it will be Moshe reincarnated which again to uh, to actually talk about reincarnation uh, there's a, a drop on that that I was able to glean from Ish Pela uh, it, it is a source about the Jewish afterlife Let's see, I took a picture of it. Uh, there are so many things in front of me right now. I'm just kind of like overwhelmed with where do I go. 
Barugashem Hashem Hakadosh Baruchu asks for your help. This is from Simcha Paul Raphael. Basically brings down that the whole uh, aspect of reincarnation as commentary in Judaism is a Karite Jew source. Karaites, by the way, are just like, you know, you really don't want none of that. That's the don't get you some of uh, mentality, for lack of a better term. You do not want Karaite teaching. Let's just put it that way. And that's where reincarnation stems from. Now, Arizal is considered to be a mystical teacher, commentator of Torah, and he has what's called Gilgulim, which is connected to cycling of soul and things like that, which is actually a different, uh, trans it's, it's called transmigration in layman's terms, but Gilgul is actually the more accurate term, has to do with cycling of soul. Which is where you get the whole idea of so-and-so as a reincarnation of so-and-so. Which is why you may have heard in Parsha Pincus that Pincus is Eliyahu. Depending on what you read, it says that Pincus is, or that Eliyahu is Pincus reincarnated and all that kind of stuff. So when it gets down into technical words, translations, definitions, it gets all muddy. And again... Reincarnation comes from Karaite's thought. So, again, that's not kosher. That's not something we really want to deal with. However, when it comes to cycling of soul, what does that even mean? Don't really want to get into it, but I just want to bring down the source about where reincarnation comes from. And it's not to be connected with the Arizal. It's not to be connected with Gilgul. And it's not to be uh, an overlay of, okay, let's, let's go ahead and adopt that into our theology. Now, I know that it is probably quite confusing because I'm blue screening as I'm talking about it. But the point in that is, uh, again, I want to go back to the fact I've said this in a previous podcast that when the ladies, the Eshekail of the home makes hala and she separates the dough, she is a tacoon. She is a repair, if you will, of Hava, of Eve. When she took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ate its fruit, and also gave it to Adam. The fact that she did that, she brought death into the world. So every time a woman makes challah and separates the dough and brings forth the bread to the table, and we say hamotzi over it, that means that a little piece of hava pun intended because or homiletically it kind of sounds like you know because the little piece of hala a little piece of hava you know that what's going on there which is a little piece of ahava which is the word for love so you have the hala hava and ahava here so basically all that to say that when a woman is making the hala she becomes a portion of hava and she actually brings about repair into the world because of that. So technically, if you really want to talk about transmigration, if you really want to talk about cycling of soul, then that needs to be addressed. That this is not reincarnation. This is more of a repairing the breach. Basically what we're doing during these three weeks, repairing the breach of why did the walls of Jerusalem uh, get breached? leading up to the destruction of both temples why was their evil report from the spies accepted by us and led to a night of crying which is now why we celebrate or commemorate 
shall we say, Tishba'av. The crying was not supposed to be crying for sadness and mourning. It was actually supposed to be crying because of gratitude and thanksgiving. You know how if someone does something so overwhelming to you that you just cry, this pure happiness, pure joy, like a husband and a wife who finally get to touch as they enter in underneath the hoopah, you know, because there's the whole Shomer Nagia process. So the first time a man actually touches his wife is actually as they hold hands to go underneath the hoopah. That kind of crying or the, the crying that we say in the Birkat Hamazon, those who tearfully sow will reap in glad song. Speaking of leaving exile and coming into the final redemption. That's the crying that should be occurring on the night of Tishba'av. But instead, since we listen to the slander of the land by the ten spies, now we have to cry in mourning because of our own acceptance of disbelief in Hashem. We accept it not believing in Hashem. We accept it not having a, to a portion of Torah. We accept it not having a portion of the land. And so now we're crying in mourning. We began that process. So it's all based off of disbelief. So all that to say, now as we begin to tearfully sow during this exile, which is all related to making proselytes, as brought down by Tractate Pesachim, that says that Yisrael was sent into exile for none other than making converts. So the struggles that it is to live a Jewish life and to be a witness of Hashem in the world, the tears that come from all the heartaches and pains that that is, the being divided from your family, the being at odds with people who are anti-Semitic and so on and so forth, those kinds of tears are actually what we're tikkuning. So now that we cry through these things, the blood, sweat, and tears kind of mentality, that's what overturns this time of mourning and turns it into a time of joy. Because we will be rewarded for our deeds. And we have to know that, believe that, and trust that. And place all that we are within the hands of Hashem. So I'm going to go back to looking for the... Uh, the drop, if you will, on uh, the life of Yehoshua is an extension of Moshe. Hmm. I again, tights. But all of that to say, when it comes to the whole uh, Gilgalim and all that kind of stuff, that we we have to understand that it's it's a tikkun process. It's not to say you know so and so is reincarnated and. All that kind of stuff. There's an opportunity that's there for us to mend. So, understanding that Yehoshua is an extension of Moshe is a beautiful precedent that when the Mashiach comes and he's supposed to be Moshe reincarnated, here it is, Baruch Hashem. This is a Parsha Vayelik. And this is from the interpolated translation of the Keher Tumash and um, Parsha Vayelik, and it is in where are we at here? We're in the fourth reading. 
going down, going down. Actually, let me just go ahead and say it this way because it's, it's actually in the seventh reading. <laughs> because we are. What chapter is this? Just a few numbers here. Chapter 31. Okay, Devarim chapter 31. There's a lot of commentary in the interpolated, so it's just kind of like flipping and flipping <laughs> to find it. Okay, so I apologize. Chapter 31, verse 29, where it says, For I know that after my death you will surely become corrupted and deviate from the way that I commanded you because God has told me as much. Consequently, the evil will befall you at the end of days because you did evil in the eyes of God to provoke to anger through the work of your hands. So there's this whole drop here that after the death of Moshe, we will become corrupted and we will deviate from the way that we were originally commanded by Hashem. So if you look at the uh, the interestingness of that, because above in verse 16, Hashem is speaking to Moshe that the people are going to go astray. So we see that if we don't have Moshe and by extension Yehoshua, that there is corruption and deviation from the commandments of Hashem. And isn't that so true? Because how many people say the law of Moses is done away with and what do they live like? Off the path, off the derrick. So here's the precedent. It says the Israelites assembled together with their elders as Moshe requested. Sleek going back, going back. The people did not become corrupt. Again, this is 3129, interpolated commentary, Kehert Humash. The people did not become corrupt until after Yehoshua died. See Shoftim, which is Judges chapter 2, verse 7. And it says, But as far as God and Moshe were concerned, Yehoshua's lifetime was an extension of Moshe's own. For true teachers value their students' lives as their own. Yehoshua's lifetime was an extension of Moshe's own. For true teachers value their students' lives as their own. Now, I'm citing this because this is the precedent for how Mashiach, when he is revealed to us, that we have to understand that the commentary that says that the Mashiach is Moshe, you know, because Moshe is the same gematria as Shiloh, as brought down in Bereshit 49, Yaakov blessing his sons. Okay, so Shiloh, until Shiloh comes, Shiloh is the name of the Mashiach. Moshe is the same gematria as the name Shiloh, so therefore Moshe is the Mashiach. So when, when, when Shiloh comes, it's Moshe. Okay, so the Torah is showing us already from Parsha Bayelik that Moshe and Yehoshua are extensions, or Yehoshua is an extension of Moshe. So, 
let's try to put this together here real quick because I mean wow <laughs> Moshe or uh, Yehosh or Mashiach Yeshua brings down that if you don't believe in Moshe then you don't believe in me Yochanan 546 if you had believed Moshe you would believe me because he wrote about me so all that to say going all the way back and uh parsha matot here as we're going out to war we just have to remember that yehoshua is supposed to be the one who leads us out to war so hang on before i finish that <laughs> oh my goodness I, I i just i apologize i'm just so i'm overwhelmed with information right now breathe Book in this real quick before we go back to Yehoshua supposed to lead us out to war. So the whole thing, Yehoshua is an extension of Moshe. Yeshua says, if you don't believe in Moshe, you can't believe in me. If you have not Moshe, you don't have Yehoshua, which is Yeshua. Which means if you don't have the Torah, you can't have the Mashiach. Which means that if you don't have the Torah, if you don't have the Torah, if you don't have Mashiach, then you are by default walking in ways of lawlessness and therefore Yeshua says if you say Lord Lord he says depart from me I never knew you because you were workers of lawlessness so all of that it's a package deal so in other words if you don't have the law of Moses you don't have the Messiah and if you have the Messiah but yet don't have the law of Moses you actually don't have Messiah because in order to have Messiah you have to have Moses because Moses is the one who teaches us about the Messiah okay boom there's that now back to we're at going out to war in Parsha Matot Moshe is supposed to lead the people but yet in Parsha Pincus Hashem says that Yehoshua is gonna lead the people he's gonna go before he's gonna go out before the people and he's also going to lead the people back in so the whole thing about the battles is the Mashiach is going to go out before us lead us in the war and he's also going to assure us success and victory and bring us back in okay but pink is is actually the one who goes out to war even though Moshe is supposed to lead us out to war against Midian so all of that to say that okay what is going on here because there seems to be this delegation type thing going on that even though it's Pincus who is the priest anointed for war he represents Moshe but yet this is really supposed to be Yehoshua but Moshe is still alive so Yehoshua hasn't really ascended to leadership yet but yet he's been anointed for leadership because Last week's Torah portion, Pincus, Moshe places his hands, which is Shmika, giving him the uh, authority, giving him the uh, ordination. There it is, uh, giving him the ordination to become the leader. So this is actually a beautiful picture about Melek David, King David, because Shamuel comes in and does the anointing of King David while Shaul is still king over Israel now from the point that King David was anointed as king 
to the time that his leadership was established as like, okay, Shaul is dead. Here is the rise of David. There was a quite a bit of time. So the beauty of what we're talking about right now is that it's Moshe, but it's Yehoshua, but it's Pincus. And it's just kind of like, wow, like this beautiful picture here of the unity, which, by the way, Pincus is Eliyahu. And then you have the intricate connection between Eliyahu and the Mashiach, because in order for the Mashiach to be revealed, Eliyahu heralds his coming. So the Messiah text actually brings down that it'll be a three day period, you know, which could mean so many different things. But all that to say that Eliyahu will precede the Mashiach by three days and different portions of Talmud brings down uh, more commentary on that. But we're not going to get into that. But I just love to point out that it's mind boggling to say that Pincus represents Moshe, but Yehoshua represents Moshe and Eliyahu represents Pincus and Eliyahu heralds the Mashiach. And we read Parsha Pincus going into the three weeks. And Pincus is a person who sparks the final redemption. So, I mean, it's just absolutely incredible to just kind of put those pieces together and play around with them. So I pray HaKadosh Baruch Hu continues to bring forth illumination as we look at those pieces. But anyway... We're supposed to go out to war against the Midianites. And there's a beautiful uh, teaching about why Moshe didn't lead the Midianites out to war because Midian actually took care of Moshe. Here it is. Uh, this is from the Midrash says, page 405, says, Hashem told Moshe, avenge B'nai Israel against the Midianites who enticed them to immorality and idol worship. Afterwards, you will be gathered unto your people. So Moshe is basically like Iron Man in this scenario, because remember Dr. Strange was telling Iron Man, you know, we're in the end game now at the end of Affinity War. And when the end game final battle was happening, Dr. Strange was telling Iron Man that, hey, if I tell you how this ends, you're not going to like it. And Iron Man was like, oh, that means I'm going to die. And it's just kind of like, well, you better be right about this, because if I sacrifice my life and we lose, then, you know, I'm coming for you, basically. It's kind of an interesting exchange there with without words. So in other words, Moshe going to lead us in the war against the Midianites is like, Moshe, you're going to die after the end of this. So this is basically the end game for you. If you go to war and lead us out to war, understand this would be like putting on the uh, the infinity gauntlet and snapping and it will kill you. <laughs> it's just kind of like, OK. So anyway, uh, just a little uh, fun with the concept of Avengers and Avengers going on right here. I just love that. You know, uh, with the fact of us having the superheroes that are the Jewish versions of all of the Marvel comics and DC comic characters and even Star Wars, because we have a uh, we have a Ray Skywalker Avenger 
And uh, that shouts out to Keela Bot Shira. So shouts out to her. But anyway, all that to say, this whole thing about Moshe going out to war against Midian. So what's up with that? So as knowing now that he would not die until he destroyed Midian, Moshe could have postponed the war several years in order to lengthen his life. Yet he did not hesitate, but immediately began to mobilize the army for battle. So, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and read this from uh, the Parsha in depth because this is where it gets quick to the point about why Moshe himself actually didn't uh, go to war with Midian because they took care of him. Because if you remember, Moshe's wife, Zipporah, is a Midianite. So, let's see here. Stand by. Uh, it is from the Midrash Rabbah. It says, God charged Moshe with a mission, yet he sends others. But since Moshe had grown up in the land of Midian, he thought, it is not right that I should punish one who has done good to me. The proverb says, a well from which you drink, cast not a stone into it. This is also why Moshe wasn't the one who actually struck the river Nile and turned it to blood. It was Aharon who was the delegate for that because Moshe was saved by the Nile River uh, through the agency, well, the agency of the Nile River uh, because Hashem actually was the one who delivered Moshe from that. But the Nile River uh, was used and so Moshe was like well the Nile did no harm to me so I can't really strike it and turn it to blood so Aaron can because he wasn't one that was cast into it so whatever you were uh, saved from you're not to do any harm to that which is why it's so important for us to understand why we cannot be mad at the church and try to burn them up and blow them up and shut them down and choke them out kick them out the window, throw them out of a rolling vehicle. We can't do that because the church introduced us to the Mashiach and Hashem himself allowed us the opportunity to experience Hebrew, Torah, Judaism, observance, conversion, all of that to lead us out of the church. So the church was a beautiful host if you will, I know it sounds strange, but they got us connected with the, the true Mashiach, who, by the way, many people have yet to see that Yeshua, first of all, that his name is even Yeshua. So, you know, it's kind of like we, so we can't get upset and be like, oh, my pastor so-and-so, I just wish I could just go find him, you know, because, yeah, we, we feel that way, right? 
Just like the Midianites got involved in killing us. And it's just kind of like Moshe, who was able to be a person who took refuge in Midian. And by the way, that's where his whole family was put together in Midian. His wife Zipporah, his, his children, you know, Gershom and Eliezer, you know, like that was his family unit there. Just like, you know, we got introduced to the Mashiach in Christianity. So it's just a beautiful picture that it's like, okay, well, Moshe is going to have to go to war against the Midianites and that's going to be his demise. But he himself is not going to do the war, but he will delegate, you know, and send out Pincus. So, I don't, you know, it's just an interesting thing because we have to understand that Edom, which is representative of Rome and Christianity, they will be destroyed, but it will be not through our own agency. And remember, it is the house of Esau, the house of Edom, which is those who act like Edom will be destroyed. And it's not because we're going to directly go up and kill them, but it is because in the time to come, the house of Edom will be consumed by the fire of the word of God. This is why it is so important to see that as we get closer to the final redemption, there are no legs left to stand on when it comes to Christian thought, ideology. Like, we will not do Torah. All foods are clean. The law of Moses is death. Like, all these things are straw man arguments that are continually being consumed and devoured by the fire of Hashem because when a person is given the opportunity to see the lie exposed like it's happening the the lies are being exposed there's beginning to be less and less excuses of looking at the bible and saying yeah get rid of the front part like that is no longer as strong of an argument as it used to be the more and more we have converts, the more and more we have more teaching, more equipping, the more and more of us who've been delivered from the house of Esau and been converted into becoming children of Yaakov, the more we do our job, the more we shine our light, the more and more this is, this is seen. You know, many people don't think that you should eat kosher because they don't know about it. No one's teaching about it. No one's being that example. And the mighty Haver Shlita brought down from Minutes with Menashe this past Shabbat that the best teaching is the example. The way that a son learns from his father is not necessarily by what the father says, but what the father does. So a son learns from his father by the example that the father sets. If the father is like, yeah, be Jewish and be observant, son. But the, yet the son sees the father not being Jewish, not being observant. Then guess what? The son is going to learn what to do and how to be because of what he sees. And people are going to learn in the world to be Jewish, to go through conversion, to eat kosher, to attach themselves to the Torah of Hashem, to call upon the name of Mashiach Yeshua by the example that we set
This is our job. This is our role. Anyway, back to avenging. So going on to page 407. It says, B'nai Yisrael assembled their army with the trumpet blast as commanded by the Torah. Okay, so we're in Parsha Matot. The Midrash says, page 407, tells us about when we go assemble the army, we assemble with trumpet blast. Well, isn't it interesting that that is the direct connection back to Parsha Beha Avoteka? Specifically in chapter 10 and verse 9, the Kehurt Humash brings down in the Hasidic insights. What does it say? It says, allegorically, we are constantly fighting. Our, the war that we are constantly fighting is the war against our Yetzahara. This fight is particularly intense during prayer. Now remember I said prayer is... A time of warfare well here's another commentary that connects to that thought it says when the Yetzirah tries to distract us from concentrating on God and deepening our relationship with him okay so there's that so when you're praying you're at war you're given the victory through Hashem the more you disassociate yourself from sin the more you disassociate yourself from lawlessness, which is the same thing, uh, the more you will be granted the opportunity for victory. So, yeah. So, in other words, you really want a, a good prayer life that's super vibrant and um, more victorious of distractions and more victorious in concentration? Well, how are you doing with your victory over sin? Or better yet, how are you doing with your victory in pursuing Hashem? You know, Rabbi GQ Shlita brings this down uh, for Parsha Matot. What does he say? He says, man, I have so many different things in front of me i apologize for being all spaced out hopefully this is followable but it says our parsha is thus an important source for the laws of purification of the vessels of metal wood and other materials that had previously been in the possession of and used by non-israelites bami bar 31 24, 21 through 4 20 sa Bami Bar 31, 21 through 24. Everything, literally, word. So again, there's another drop for the word for thing and the word for word are one and the same, which is the Hebrew word devar. So it says that can come into fire, you must pass through the fire and it will be pure. But it must be purified with the waters of Nida, while all that can come into fire, you must pass through the water. While all that cannot come into fire, you must pass through the water. Now this is very, very interesting. Because it's got to be purified with the waters of Nida. 
That is just wow. Let's just look at that for a second. Because when you look at the waters of Nida, right? So when a woman is done with her week of menstrual impurity, she immerses in a mikvah. And when she immerses in the mikvah, that which was impure now becomes pure. And now we're talking about a vessel particularly that has to be purified through water. So, specifically, Bami Bar 31, 23, looking at the interlinear, Kol Devar, again, everything literally can be translated as every word, Asher Vaesh, that can endure fire, you shall put through fire, and it shall be clean. Ak nida, and indeed with water of purification, yit chata, which is it shall be purified. Now, yit chata is interesting because the root of yit chata is literally from the word for sin, which means to miss the mark so the word for it shall be purified yichata which mean which is the root of to miss the mark i think that is very very interesting and the first use of yichata is actually in bami bar 1912 that says one shall purify himself from uncleanness and I believe this is Barsha who got yep this is Barsha who got okay more breathing I'm not sure what's going on but blessed be the name of Hashem this is so much information right now Hard to hard to podcast like this. I don't really know how to make sense, but <laughs> he who knew no sin became sin that he may bring forth the righteousness of God within us, right? So second Corinthians drop letter to the Corinthians is I mean, what is going on with that? Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. And then it says in verse, or Sika, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says that. You know, the new creation drop, right? So verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through the Mashiach and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Mashiach, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses their sins against them and he has entrusted us the message of reconciliation we therefore are ambassadors for the mashiach as though god were making his appeal through us we beg you on behalf of mashiach be reconciled to god 
key verse, verse 21. So 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is the verse we've been quoting. It says, He made the one who knew no sin to become sin, to become a sin offering on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This literally is yit kata. Like, in the word for sin, if you take yit kata, you literally have the yod and the tav, which is like the hand and the mark. So the hand that was marked, i.e. the pierced hand of the Mashiach, when that was connected to sin, that brought forth purification. Um, don't really know what to do with that, but I wanted to just speak on the word for Nida, because again, Nida is the water of purification that we were talking about. Nida itself means impurity. So the waters of impurity bring forth purity, just like the marked hand, the Yotav, connected to sin, actually means purification. Goodness. Bami Bar 3123. I'm screenshotting this because this, I mean, what? I don't know if y'all can follow what I'm saying, but I hope you can. Hakadosh Protocol, please translate for us right now. This is help us understand, give us illumination. Okay, so back to Rabbi GQ. By the way, Rabbi GQ is the nickname for uh, Rabbi Abraham Greenbaum. He is a wonderful uh, Rebbe who is uh, a contemporary in the land of Israel right now, like Baruch Hashem. So he goes on to say, purify with the waters of Nida. It says, from this are derived the laws of koshering utensils that have absorbed forbidden substances, the laws of immersing vessels in a kosher mikveh. You ever heard of toveling your dishes? Yeah, well, that source is in this week's Torah portion of Matot. We went out to war against the Midianite and we brought back the spoils from the war. Some of those spoils were dishes and pots and pans and all sorts of stuff that were previously used by Midianites, which guess what? They would have been people who made cheeseburgers. They would have been people who did chicken Alfredo. They would have been people who just mixed all sorts of meat and dairy products. You know, um, beef lasagnas and whatnot which side note there are kosher ways to do meat and dairy things um, because you can have meat substitutes or you can have dairy substitutes so there are non-dairy cheeses and there are non-meat meats which sounds weird to say a non-meat meat that's is that that, that, that is that that non-meat meat uh thing you got going on over there beyond beef is one of those so you can literally take Beyond Beef and you can make a Beyond Beef lasagna if you really want to. Like put all the cheese in the world on it because it's Beyond Beef. It's not actually meat, but it looks like meat. So now we're at the avoid the appearance of evil kind of concept. But today in our generations, we know there's a lot of uh, meat substitutes that exist like... Uh, they have impossible burgers and all sorts of stuff. So lots of times things that are actually meat, uh, we know in this generation anyway, that there are substitutes. Not saying that they're good or bad or that you need to do that or you don't need to do that, but just pointing that out. So really 
you know, obviously a person who's trusted with their kosh root, uh, you can't just go, well, that person was eating a cheeseburger. It's like, well, was it real meat or was it real cheese? Because vice versa, we have substitutes for both of those. Anyway, not really wanting to get off into the weeds of that, but just wanted to point that out. Just in case there's anyone who struggles with meat and dairy, just know that there are substitutes available. Um, but also know that the Spirit of God is more powerful. Because if you are a person who has taken the leap of faith to say, God is bigger than my stomach, um, you know, you could be delivered from desiring and craving cheeseburgers and actually successful at it because I, I have done it. I don't know how many times I've mentioned this before, but I used to love triple cheeseburgers like that was my thing. You know, double quarter pounders at McDonald's totally used to be my thing. But upon conversion, but upon entering into observance, totally not my thing anymore. I can totally be fine with just a burger by itself. Turkey burgers, no cheese. Beef burgers, no cheese. Chicken burgers, if that's a thing, no cheese. I can totally do it. Because why? God is bigger than my stomach. And not to mention, I used to love bacon cheeseburgers. And guess what? They have beef bacon that you can put on your burger. They have turkey bacon that you can put on your burger. Totally good. And I, I don't always want turkey bacon or beef bacon on my burger. I just sometimes want a plain burger with some mayo and lettuce. And I'm done. You know, like, boom. That's it. So anyway, just to point that out, there are there are amazing things available for us. So to stay stuck in a, I will continue to eat kosher, I will continue to mix meat and dairy, mentality is actually to diminish Hashem and say that his arm is not mighty to save, his arm is too short, and Hashem is not sovereign over creation. That's basically what it boils down to, pun intended, because the whole meat and dairy uh, prohibition comes from the verse about not boiling a kid in its mother's milk. But anyway, why do we have toveling and koshering our dishes? Is because Parsha Matot when we went out to war against the non-Jews, the Midianites over here. Uh, we brought back some of their dishes, and it's like, whoa, whoa! Before you use those things, pass them through water, and those which can be passed through fire, pass them through fire. So, Bami Bar 3123 is packed. It's got so much about toppling dishes just in the Hebrew alone before even getting into commentary. But back to Rabbi GQ, because he connects this with Teshuva is the reason why I wanted to bring this up. It says, Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, Lakute Maharon, Volume 1, brings down the esoteric meaning of these laws which teach how to repent for our sins if we sinfully took our holy powers and energies and burned them up in the fires of animal lust we must take what came into fire and pass it through the fire we must repent by confessing our sins with words of fire burning them up 
with holy intensity the fire of our passion to now rectify and elevate our energies and so too the pure waters of the torah the mikvah purify the vessel which is the body the pure waters of the torah which is a mikvah the torah is a mikvah did you know that if you really want to undergo a mikvah if you want to tovel yourself in a mikvah how do you do that it is through confession confession and repentance every single time you confess and repent you acknowledge your sin before our holy god say i messed up i desire change I will change and you make steps to do that change you have immersed yourself in the mikvah of Torah and purified your vessel which is the body so anyway uh, that's Rabbi GQ deciding to share that like that was okay so back to going to war though so we deepen our relationship with Hashem when we go out to war so Parsha Baha'u'llah again the Hasidic Insights, chapter 10, verse 9, talking about we go out to war, the primary war is particular during prayer. We blast sh trumpets, right? Shofar blasts at this. It says the allegorical trumpet we sound in order to enlist God's help. We sound the trumpet in order in to enlist God's help. We sound the shofar to enlist God's help against the Yetzirah. Is our out? Is our sleeka? Is our heartbroken cry? Now, if you've listened to an Aliyah day, Parsha Matot Masay, the first reading by Rabbi Griffin Shlita, he ended with a beautiful drop about the Terua blast of the shofar and how it takes us who are estranged from Hashem and brings us back. So when we sound the trumpet, when we sound the shofar blast, we're doing a process of teshuva, immersing ourselves in a mikvah, deepening our relationship with Hashem, so on and so forth. We're enlisting God's help against the Yatahara. Uh, says the silent tears we shed over our being so spiritually weak that we are vulnerable to the evil inclination strategies when we beseech god to have mercy on us he comes to our aid and rescues us from our enemy but we see here that we must blow the trumpets not only while in the thick of battle but also when we have overcome the enemy and even on joyous festivals blowing the trumpets on these occasions reminds us that our victory over the Yetzirah is never final and we should never let our success get the better of us the Yetzirah is always devising new ways to ensnare us and we must be constantly on guard constantly enlisting God's help this is why we always, 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 and yes, always come back to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Every single moment, every single hour, every single day, 
repent, repent, repent. After we repent, we repent some more. Now, just to throw this last thing in, because this, I believe, is going to connect with the point that I want to read from page 121 of the Midrash says, quoting on, or commenting on Parsha Bahaloteka. The Keher Tumash brings out in his same insight on 10.9. It says that the sacrifices mentioned here reflect two basic strategies in how we approach God. As we have seen, drawing close to God is the true meaning of the Hebrew word for sacrifice, which is the word Korban. So when we talk about making sacrifices, offering sacrifices, people ask you, do you do offer sacrifices since you're Jewish and all that? You can say the answer is actually yes, we do offer sacrifices because, you know, there's things like prayer, there's things like repentance, there's things like uh, circumcising our sons at eight days. You know, by the way, when you circumcise your son at eight days, it's considered as if you brought all the offerings. Totally a thing. But anyway, yeah, we do make sacrifices. This is why the writer of the Hebrews says, offer up sacrifices of praise to Hashem. Because anytime you say Baruch Hashem, you've just offered a sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? Because we think sacrifices are, okay, go get your, go get your animal from the flock or from the herd <clears throat> and bring them to the temple, have the Levite and the Kohen, you know, slaughter and offer them. And that's going to bring us atonement. Well, actually, it starts with our words, starts with our intention. Whole lot more can be said about that, but to get back to sounding the shofar, going out to war, and constantly sounding the shofar, which is enlisting God's help, which is the blasting of the trumpets, it says this, each departure of B'nai Yisrael in the wilderness was, was announced by three signals. First, the cloud of glory that hovered over the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, when B'nai Yisrael encamped, rolled itself up like a scroll, basically, and turned into a straight pillar to signify that departure was imminent. So you have this idea of the cloud of glory, the first cloud of glory that led us in the wilderness. It unrolls and rolls itself up like the way we do the Torah scroll on the Bema during Shabbat when we read from the Torah. So there's this whole thing about us sitting as we read the Torah scroll because the Torah is unrolled, it's rolled out, we say the bracha, we sit and we listen to the Torah being read. But then when we pick up the Torah for the Zodha Torah and then ultimately we roll it back up so that we can put it back in the ark, we are standing because that's exactly how we treated the cloud of glory. So the cloud of glory is directly associated with how we treat the Torah scroll with our standing and our sitting back to standing. Okay. Goes on to say, Then Moshe proclaimed, Kuma Adonai, which is arise. This is the Vahib and Soa, which bidding the cloud to begin traveling. But Vahib and Soa, like the 
and the children when the children of Israel would journey, the ark would go before us and all of that, right? So here it's saying that this is Moshe proclaiming to the cloud, but yet this was said in reference to the ark, which by the way had the broken tablets in it, which by the way represent the Mashiach being Yosef. So the Torah is Mashiach, which is the ark, which is the cloud, which is what we follow that leads us in the wilderness at the blast of trumpets, which is God helping us to have victory over our evil inclination. Okay, so there's that. It says the Kohanim blew the special departure call with both silver trumpets. At that, the people began to travel. Besides signaling, blah, besides signaling departure, the trumpets were also used to announce assemblies of the entire congregation, as well as assemblies of the Nasi'im, the princes of the tribes. Different sounding blasts announced each event. When they would depart, both trumpets simultaneously did a tekiah, teruah, tekiah sound. This is going to get real Rosh Hashanah-like because we do certain sounds during Rosh Hashanah. So this is really cool. It says assembly of all of the Israel would be both trumpets blasting one tekiah sound. The assembly of the Nasi'im, the heads of the tribes, was with one trumpet doing one tekiah. Says Hashem laid down a mitzvah for all generations to blow trumpets on the following occasions at a time of calamity, for example, when the enemy attacks, or in a drought, or a plague, and so on. Upon hearing the trumpet sound, Hashem promises to remember B'nai Israel favorably and rescue them from danger. Alarmed by the trumpet blast, the Jews will be roused from their mental lethargy and due to Shuva. So you know when God comes to help us, when he comes to deliver us from evil, that is intricately connected to Teshuva. So if we really want deliverance in our life, if we really want to experience Yeshua, we have to be people of Teshuva. This is why Yeshua said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, it goes on to say, they will then deserve heavenly assistance. So how do we get victory in battle? Because we are assisted by Hashem. And that is through our teshuva and so on and so forth. There's a whole lot working together in that. Here's a point about why I brought up the sacrifices and the word Corbin drawing near Hashem says in the Beta Mikdash, the Kohanim, the Kohanim, not the Levites, but the Kohanim, daily sounded trumpets while the communal Tamid sacrifices were offered. You know, the lamb that's offered in the morning and in the afternoon, which represent the Akidah. So while the Akidah is being offered, there is blast of the shofar it says all together at least 21 trumpet sounds 
were blown in the Beit HaMikdash every day. Three in the morning to signal that the gates were open. Wow. You remember the, the Kohen? Alright, Islika. The Goodbye. Shouts out to the Goodbye of Sarshalom Tulsa, by the way. I posted his video on Parsha Pinkus from this past Shabbat. Oh my word. It's an hour and like a few minutes or something like that of just outrageous truth. So, Shimon Shlita. Shouts out to you. Todah Rabbah. Yasher Koak. Get some help. What kind of ice cream would you like? And all of the above. Because, wow. Big things are happening with Sarshalom Tulsa. May they continue. And may Sarshalom Tulsa bring Mashiach as well. Amen. So anyway, uh, the goodbye is the one who says, priests to your sacrifices, Levites to your platform, Israelites to your station. So as that's going on, he says that three times, and there are also three blasts of trumpets while that's going on. There are nine blasts of the trumpet shofars uh, during the daily Tamid offering in the morning. There are nine during the daily Tamid offering in the afternoon. And another nine as if... <laughs> wow. So we got three plus nine plus nine. That's 21. Okay, and it says another nine if there was a Musaf sacrifice, which happens usually on the festivals, specifically on Shabbat. There's an additional offering. So now you're going to add 9 to 21, which makes that 30. And then on every Erev Shabbat, three sounds were blown in the afternoon to remind people that it was time to stop working. You know, this is why it's cool to think about the Mashiach returning with shofar blasts going on because it's going to be time for us to stop working and enter into the day that will be an eternal Shabbat. Can't wait for that. May it be soon in our time. It says, as Shabbat was about to begin, another three sounds were blown. Goodness gracious. So, technically, depending on when Arab Shabbat would fall, you're looking at 36 shofar blasts could potentially happen in one day because that's that's ridiculous okay but anyway uh it says why were the trumpets sounded during the daily tamid offering the daily sacrifices slika why were they sounded during the daily sacrifices their blasts were meant to stir the people to teshuva the sacrifices would then achieve their true aim of causing B'nai Israel to return to Hashem. So why do we offer up sacrifices? Because we're supposed to be making Teshuvah. So therefore, prayer, which takes the place of sacrifices these days, the reason why we're constantly praying, the reason why we're constantly making Teshuvah, is because the aim is to cause us to return to Hashem. And as we continue to do that, Hashem is sounding blast of shofar, which signal divine assistance 
to help us make teshuva. So if we desire to make teshuva, we must know, believe, and trust that Hashem is assisting us. And if Hashem is going to assist us, we have to understand that means we will be successful. Just like it was when we went out to war against the Midianites. We were guaranteed success. Now the cool thing about that is this. There's this whole thing about numbers and how that's not really a focus. It says from the Mayam Loez to Bami Bar 31.5, Moshe wanted to demonstrate to them that it's not the number of troops or their arms that determines victory or defeat, but their worthiness. For Zimri had caused the death of 24,000 without a single sword or armament. Think about that for a second. 24,000 people were killed without using weapons. It says, while they numbered only 12,000, this is a thousand from each tribe, it says they would defeat far more numerous Midianites and not a single one of them was lost. Bami Bar 3149 says, and even though in ordinary wars, there are casualties also on the victorious side. When, wouldn't it be amazing if we truly trusted God at his word that he would assist us knowing that we're doing all that we can to return to him and to walk in his ways so with that being the foundation to go out to war you know against our own Yetahara because that's really the war even though okay yeah we got enemies like you know, immorality, idolatry, lawlessness, and all that kind of stuff. You know, we have like real enemies and things that we have to face in our life, but the enemy beyond all enemies is uh, is the Yetahara. That's really our greatest enemy, if you think about it. You know, it's commonly said the greatest enemy is ourself. <laughs> Which is funny because that's this exile. The exile of Edom, the fourth kingdom, as I brought down in Parashat Pincus PSI, is ourself. We caused this exile. We caused the temples to be destroyed. We caused the temple, the, the, the last temple that we had about 2,000 years ago, we destroyed it. Just like we destroyed the first temple. Just like we broke the tablets. Just like we brought the evil reports in the land and listened to those evil reports and decided that the wilderness was totally a place that we should stay. Hence why we brought these three weeks of mourning on ourselves. So the goal for victory is to defeat ourself. 
And wouldn't it wouldn't it be awesome if we embraced confidence, courage, and bravery in this war against ourselves, against our own Yatahara to become victorious? Because we won't have any casualties. And we can at least be victorious over 24,000 uh, entities, if you will, without even having a single weapon, without having any armor. <laughs> if it's true that Zimri could cause the death of 24,000 people without a sword or armament, then how much more, how much more so if we're doing an act of righteousness? How much victory is that? You ever think about how many enemies you defeat in your life just because you lit candles to enter into the Shabbat? You ever think about that? Because sometimes we get so caught up. It's like, did I study the Torah portion this week? Did I dive in all three times a day every single day? Did I, you know, crush root all my kitchen? Did I... You know, growing my stringencies on my observances, you know, like, do I have all my hot plates? Do I flip the light switches or not on Shabbat? Do I drive on Shabbat? You know, um, you know, we worry about so many different minute details, but we never think about what mitzvot we are doing and how powerful those mitzvot are. Like for a guy, we wear, we wear zitzit. Where Talit Katan, the pair of Zitzi underneath our everyday clothes, we wear them in our goings to and from. Do we ever stop and think about the power of wearing Zitzi? Do you ever stop and think about the power of saying a bracha before you eat and fulfilling the mitzvah of saying the bracha after you eat? Do you ever think about how many enemies we take out with that? Do you ever think about how many enemies we take out from uh, going to the grocery store and buying a kosher product, making a kosher meal? I mean, we're inundated with opportunity of victory over thousands of entities in our life. And... To quote Ish Pela Shlita, him and I were studying this past Shabbat and he was talking about it's not just that we do the mitzvah, it's that we do it with joy. And I was just kind of like, wow. Because there's a way to do the mitzvot and for it to actually be a curse. Uh, let's see here. Stand by for source on that. It's uh, in the blessing and the curses section. Because you didn't do it with joy, you're cursed. Yep, Devarium 28, 47. Because you did not serve Hashem your God joyfully and gladly, in the time of prosperity. So these curses will be a sign 
and a wonder upon you and your descendants forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness. That's pretty heavy, right? Because Tehillim 100 verse 2 says, um, Serve the Lord, serve Hashem with gladness, come into his presence with joyful songs. The amazing Chazan Shlita brought down as we began our worship set this past Shabbat with a beautiful song about Yismeku uh, by Shamal Katz. And he said, who are the rejoicers in the kingdom of Hashem? It is those who keep the Shabbat. Oh yeah, and call it a delight. Because after service, I went up to him in Oneg and I said, first of all, how are you going to start a set off like that with webbing people up? And I call it soddy to the face. But anyway, that's a, another story for another time. So I'm like, why are you going to web people up? Right out, of, right at the beginning of our worship set, by saying, "Those who are people that rejoice in the kingdom of Hashem are the people who keep Shabbat." And he was ready. He was like, "Well, come on with it," because not only is it that you are keeping the Shabbat, but it's and you call it a delight, i.e., that you are not doing just doing the mitzvah, but you are doing the mitzvah with joy. I'm like. Oh, he's like, because there are two Shabbat candles, not one. Because there are two Mashiachs, not one. And I was like, homeboy, just calm down. We are in the Oneg Hall. Like, why you got to get all turned up like that? So we have to remember, to go back to Ishpela, that, yeah, okay, so you did the mitzvah, but did you do it with joy? Did you do it with joy? Because... If we continue to be in this process of, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this. But if you never have any joy, guess what? You're bringing curses on yourself. And did not Shaul Hashliach say, Mashiach has redeemed us from the curse? Didn't he say that? So if he redeemed us from the curse of the law, right? That is from the letter to Galatia, chapter 3, verse 13. Let's read in context. The law, however, is not based on faith. It's not based on a muna. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Now, that's interesting because that's what a muna is, is to live by faith. <laughs> uh, a muna, again, the root of a muna is a met, which is truth. So a person who walks in a muna is a person who is faithful in good deeds. So if the law is not based on being faithful in your good deeds, the complete opposite is to live by being faithful in good deeds. I could see how that's confusing. So obviously there's way more that we could say about that, but understanding that we have to live by our faith. We have to exist. Our very essence is about fulfilling the word of God. Not saying that, okay, I'm going to do all these mitzvot. And that's, that's it. So I've, I've completed all the mitzvot. Like if you have that mentality is what I'm saying. If you have that mentality, like stop. 
because you need to do the mitzvot. But however, if there's no life in your doing of the mitzvot, it's going to be a problem. Because again, we just read the verse that if you don't do it with joy, it's a curse, right? So now verse 13. Mashiach redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing promised to Abraham would come to the Goyim and Mashiach. You know, all the nations of the earth will be grafted in. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by you because the word for blessed and grafted is the same Hebrew word. It's called Berek, which is the root of the word Baruch, which means blessed. It says, so that by Emunah we might receive the promise of the Ruach HaKodesh. So we've been redeemed from operating in the life of mitzvot without any joy. So therefore in Mashiach, which by the way rearranges to Simcha, we should be operating in joy as we do the mitzvot. So take joy in putting on zitzit. Take joy in lighting the candles, if that's all that you do. Now don't get us wrong that we're supposed to grow in our mitzvah observance, but we're supposed to have joy in that growth that we have in our mitzvah observance. So yeah, joy may not be there immediately and you're like, well, what, do I just need to stop doing mitzvot? It's like, no, if you're doing mitzvot, do them. But work on having joy while you do them so that we're not moving ourselves into a place of curses because you're suppressing Mashiach in your life. Again, Mashiach is the same letters that are found in Simcha, which is the Hebrew word for joy. So to have joy, to have Mashiach in the mitzvot, that's what the goal is. And that would be considered living by the commandments as said here in Galatians 3.12 so Tehillim 100 uh, let's see here 100 verse 2 that says serve Hashem with gladness and come before him with joyous song Here's what the uh, Archcroll Tehillim brings down. How can we reconcile gladness with awe, which is to feel fear and respect and awe for God is an essential or it is essential to spiritual growth. Once a person realizes that his fear leads to personal greatness and bliss, even the difficulties along the way can be accepted with gladness. Again, once a person realizes that his fear leads to personal greatness and bliss, even the difficulties along the way can be accepted with gladness. Sefer HaIkarim. Sefer Hasidim reconciles the two verses. If a person is excessively happy, he should sober himself and remember the day of death. But if a person is somber and sad, he should gladden his heart 
with words of Torah. For as Tehillim 19.9 teaches, the orders of Adonai are upright, gladdening the heart. The Radak, quoting Midrash Shoker Tov, explains that when you pray to God, your heart should rejoice. For you are praying to Hashem who is incomparable. So I just want to submit to the court here. Are we living by faith? Overflowing with joy. So back to the Midrash says Parsha or uh, Parsha Mato, page 407. B'nai Yisrael assembled their army with trumpet blast, which by the way, to go back and encapsulate everything about the trumpet blast, it enlists God's assistance, gives us victory over our enemies, guarantees our victories, means we're people of Teshuvah. So B'nai Yisrael assembling their army when we assemble the Chavengers means that we're helped by Hashem and stirred in Teshuvah and granted victory as a guarantee. Okay. So, as commanded by the Torah, when the Midianites saw the small Jewish army approaches, they were confident of victory. Midianites are like, what, what, what is this? What is this? A bunch of keeper-wearing, zeet-zeet-wearing, kosher-eating, Shabbat-keeping little people over here. They think they're going to come at us? <laughs> Whatever. Let's take them down. Blow them up. Get them out of here. Nonsense. Because it says, when they were 600,000 men. So you got 600,000 versus 12,000. It says, when we defeated them. Or see, guys, it says, we defeated them by causing a plague after they sinned in Shatim. So it's like, man, we took out more of them when we sent out the Moabites and the Midianite women for them to worship Baal Peor, which is the advice that was given to us by Belam. So now they're going to think they can come at us armed for war with Pincus as their leader. They think they're going to take us out. We took them out without even having to lift a finger. What about now that we're 600,000 men and we're going to lift a finger? It says they mocked. So the enemy is already overconfident. So, you know, one of the things to think about when we're going out to war, you know, we don't know what our enemy thinks of us. One of the commentaries I was reading back in Parsha Shlach, I'm laughing because I don't remember what the commentary was, but it was some Hasidic piece of text that was uh, talking about we looked like grasshoppers in the eyes of the giants that were in the land, and so therefore we can't take the land because there's giants and they're going to kill us, they're going to kill our wives, they're going to kill our children. Hashem was like, whoever said you're going to fight the giants anyway? And whoever said that you look like grasshoppers in the eyes of the giants? You know, because sometimes we have to think about 
big things are usually intimidated by little things. You know, I uh, think about the uh, the context of spiders. You know, some of us are like, I don't want to see a spider. But how big of how big are we compared to spiders? I mean, just think about it. Is there a spider bigger than a human being? Okay, possibly, yeah. But usually spiders are really small and we're like, some people are like super freaked out by them. So this commentary was saying, you don't know how the giants view you because I could cause you to intimidate the giants. So therefore, by you saying you're intimidated by the giants, you've actually operated in self-pity and you've set yourself up for failure and pushed me out of the picture. So here's the thing. We're seeing this play out in this picture. The Midianites are like, these people are nothing. We got this. We're going to win. They're going to lose. But putting together everything we learned about the shofar blast and the trumpet blast and being assembled into Shuva and Hashem saying, listen to me. I will give you victory. If you're a person of Teshuvah, you will be granted victory. If you want to be connected to me, you will be granted victory over your enemies. So we're having to trust by something we can't see. Our enemy is going to trust by what they do see. So think about what's the greater. Is that which we can't see greater than what we can see? Or is that which we see greater than what we can't see? Because if you want to go with that route, think about this. That Shaul brings this down uh, in uh, the writing to the Corinthians. Uh, let's see here. Stand by. If I can learn how to type faster, this would be great. It is do, 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 do. first of all, you need to know uh, the letter to Timothy, chapter one, verse seventeen. The first letter of Timothy, that is chapter one, verse seventeen, says, "Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen." We need to know Hashem is invisible; He's eternal and He's immortal right so things that which we can't see are way way powerful than that which we can see so I'm pointing out that as we go to war against the Midianites the army which we can see they think that they're greater than us and they think that they're going to be victorious so we're having to trust in what we don't see that we're going to be victorious over that which we do see. So Second Corinthians. So the second letter to the Corinthians. So they say there's a whole lot I could say about that. Anyway, Second Corinthians 4:17 verse or 17 through 18 says 
For our light affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18 We have to understand that the, the God we trust in is invisible, he's eternal, he's immortal, and we will be victorious over our enemies. But we have to know that we must be people who make teshuva in order to have the assistance of God to walk in that guarantee. And to know that the enemy which we see is not greater than that which we cannot see. And it says, Why then do they come up to us with merely 12,000? The five Midianite kings took part in the battle. Among them, the slain princesses, uh, the slain princess Cosby, so her father. And it says Balaam was also on the battlefield too. The whole drop about Balaam, what was he doing there and all that kind of stuff. So uh, skipping over that for a second. It says, although the Midianite army vastly outnumbered the Jewish forces, B'nai Israel miraculously overpowered the enemy soldiers and slew them all to save himself and the five kings of Midian. Balaam exercised his powers of magic. At his pronouncements, he and the kings flew up into the air. Balaam flew higher until he reached the Kisei Kakavod, the throne of glory, but Pincus followed him there. It says the meaning of this midrash is that Balaam brought the sin of the Jews and Shittim before the throne of glory. Pincus, however, defeated his accusation. Pincus raised the Zitz, which is the priest's headplate, the Kohen Hagadol headplate. Remember the helmet of salvation? So the head covering of the Kohen had this golden headplate on it that said Kadosh Le Hashem, holy to Hashem on it. And uh, it was a gold headband. So, Mitznefet, if you're listening to this podcast, this is a shout out to your helmet of salvation here. Superpower is the Kadosh Le Hashem. So, going on, it says, Upon which were inscribed the words Kadosh Le Hashem, and turned it towards Balaam and the kings, and they plunged down Balaam and treated Pink as, Please, let me live. Let me live. Don't kill me, man. Don't kill me. Don't tase me, bro. That was Balaam. That was his words to Pincus. Says, please let me live. I promise never again to attempt to curse you. It's like, I don't know about your words, Balaam, because you just kind of flew up to the throne of glory and said, hey, remember your people? They sinned against you at Bel Peor. Like you literally just used sorcery to try to go tell on us to Hashem. And back in Parsha Balak, you tried three times to curse us. And then... On your way out the door, when you got fired by King Balak because the curses didn't work and you ended up blessing us, and you actually blessed us a fourth time because uh, you gave us the whole Mashiach prophecy thing, and I know you didn't want to do any of that, you said, hey, send your women out. Get them to sexually sin. Get them to eat unkosher food. Get them to get away from the manna. That's a sure way to kill them. So you did that. That was your last ditch effort. And then you went to collect payment. And then Hashem was like, hey, 
Children of Israel go to war against Midian. Oh, snap, look who's at Midian. It's Balaam, the one who tried to kill you. So then we show up, you start running. And you're like, Psh, I'm about to go tell Hashem on his people because Midian is about to fight them and Midian's going to lose because, oh, yeah, so Balaam knew Midian was going to lose. How about that novel? Uh, but anyway, he's just like, so let me help Midian out real quick. Let me do some sorcery. Let me go tell on the people. Let me go bring up their sin. Hashem was like, nope. Look at Pincus. And remember we learned in Parsha Pincus that the atonement Pincus made for the children of Israel is an eternal atonement. So therefore, any sin that the enemy wants to bring before Hashem, should we be connected to Hashem and Teshuvah? we're covered so that's kind of weird right so anyway Pincus is or uh Belam is trying to talk to Pincus be like look man I'm sorry I didn't I, I was just crazy I was drunk I don't know I'm sorry so here's Pincus's reply haven't you been trying to exterminate our people all your life let's just forget about Parsha Balak for a minute Belam you were on the council of Pharaoh back in Egypt when Pharaoh was trying to figure out what to do with the Jewish people to keep them from being so numerous and to wipe them out so that they could never, ever leave Egypt. So that was a long time ago. Even before that, you hated us. So continue on the text, though, it says, weren't you let me jog my memory. Weren't you Pharaoh's counselor who advised him to wipe us out? And then after the exodus, didn't you entice Amalek to wage war again? Oh my goodness. Didn't you say, Amalek, go attack the people. They're doubting Hashem. The clouds of glory are down. Now's your chance. Weren't you the one who said, Amalek, go attack. Now's your chance. That that was you. Yeah, that, that was you. I remember. I get it. Because Yehoshua had to go out to war against him. Yehoshua had to lead us in victory over the Amalekites while Moshe raised up his hand on the side of the mountain. The reason why we had to go through that episode, because of you, Belam. I mean, obviously we brought it on ourselves because we were doubting Hashem, but you didn't make matters any better. You said, oh, kick them while they're down. So that that's kind of a red flag. You're willing to kick us while we're down. So, yeah, that's a problem. Oh, and when you saw that you could not curse the Jews, didn't you give King Balak the vile suggestion to send the Midianite daughters to lead our men astray? So you, by the way, caused 24,000 Jews to die. Uh, your life is forfeited. Pincus drew his sword and slew Belam. According to the Gemara Sanhedrin 106b, they brought Belam for trial to the Sanhedrin. He was found guilty and was executed with all four kinds of death penalty given by Torah courts. Stoning, burning, strangulation, sword. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting like all four death penalties this is where uh the drop is if you ever come across a commentary that says pincus was the equivalent of the sanhedrin because uh 
Pincus killed him with the sword, and it's like, well, Sanhedrin 106B says Balaam went to the Sanhedrin. It's like, yep, because he went to Pincus. And Legends of the Jews brings down that there was a Danite who flew up like Iron Man to go get Pincus and drag him and his homeboys down out the sky and took out a sword that had the serpent on it and slayed him. So was it Pincus? Was it a Danite? Was it the Sanhedrin? The answer is yes. I mean, we've already been on the Moshe, Yehoshua, Pincus, Eliyahu track. So might as well throw this in the mix. See, this is why understanding Hashem Echad is super crucial. Understanding how Memtet and Hashem are unified. Understanding how the Mashiach and Hashem are unified. If you've seen the Father, you've seen this. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Slika. And that whole tractate of Talmud that talks about Memtet was seen sitting in the heavenly courts writing. And somebody was like, look, there's another deity. And Memtet at that point was taken and given 60 or uh, 40 lashes of fire. So that was a problem. And the person who uttered that was also, uh, they had a terrible fate. So, again, to the whole Trinity uh, doctrine that's out there, that's very, very damaging to the soul to follow in that mentality. I know to us, we can't really understand these things. They're very mystical. They're very deep concepts, very deep teachings, very deep understanding. But Hashem just wants us to start with the Shema to understand that Hashem is a Chad. It looks like he's the cloud. It looks like he's the ark. It looks like he's the Torah. It looks like he's the Mashiach. It looks like he's the angel of Hashem. I mean, goodness. Like, how, do you, how does one navigate that? We all have to come back to Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Can't go wrong with that. As long as we understand Hashem is one, there is no other. There are no other deities. There are no other gods. There are no other powers that are on par with Hashem. Like, we have got to know that. And that will be our ultimate victory. That's ultimately what needs to come out of this exile. That's ultimately what needs to come out of these three weeks. We need to know, ain't old Milvado. There's nothing but Hashem. There's nothing greater than Hashem. If Hashem says it, we got to do it. We got to trust him. If Hashem says he's going to give us victory over our enemies, we have to trust him. May Hashem help us. Ki lishuateka kiviti Hashem baruch haba b'shem Adonai hakadosh baruchu please send Mashiach now. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu menech haolam Asher natan lanu torat emet, vechaye olam nata betochenu. Baruch ata Adonai notain ha Torah.